You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. If you have your Bible, I would love for you to open up to John um, chapter 12. Um, and we are just taking a break. Uh, we were, I was so close. I thought we were going to get through Acts, um, Acts 28. We got all the way to Acts 27 last week. So we have one more week of that. And then beyond that, um, we'll be getting into, uh, into, uh, into James, which is one of my, my favorite books, very, very end of the late spring there. So if you're just joining us, usually making our way through whole books of the Bible left to right, but right now, just kind of looking at um, uh, Palm Sunday um, through, through John chapter 12. Um, and as you're turning there, I'm going to go ahead and be that guy, okay? That guy that is like went on the mission trip and just keeps showing you the pictures and wants to talk about the mission trip that you didn't go on and just how awesome it was. And you're like nodding your head and, you know, just keep nodding your head and like pretend like, you know, placate me that uh, this makes any sense or it matters to you. Uh, but, you know, it was three weeks ago, you know, me and the Gauchas, uh, Longs and the Gauchas went down there to, uh, to Guatemala. It was a quick little um, plane ride. Only one of us got deathly ill on the way there. Uh, so that was a good sign. Ali, um, had the most turbulent flight I've ever been on. Little six-year-old Ali went on this plane ride, and we'd go over to Guatemala, which is not that far away, but it felt like worlds apart. Like when I got off of the plane, I could feel my blood pressure just drop. Once you get into those like warm climate environments and you can kind of smell that like, you know, whatever it is, carnita that's cooking off in the thing and like the airport's a little bit disorganized, but you're still happy to be there. Like you can feel the world uh, change, you know, right around you. Um, and I remember, um, you know, coming in and, and I wasn't so happy, I would never been happier to eat a Whopper with cheese, you know, than after, you know, putting up a fence and hanging out and playing soccer all day is eating this Whopper with these kids and uh, drinking Coca-Cola. I love it over there. They drink Coca-Cola and there's no conscience to it. They just drink it because the water's bad. So it's like we have excuses to drink Coca-Cola classic all the time, which I'm not allowed to drink at my house. And, um, and so um, I remember, boom, like they stopped, and I think they played like the Tangled song, and they just start sweeping. Like all the kids pitch in, and they clean up, and there's no chore chart. And I was just thinking, man, like I just must be slacking as a dad. Like my kids don't do this, and I give them money, and they won't do all this stuff, you know? And, um, and uh, I remember, you know, spending time over there. Um, I've talked about this, you know, on Sunday mornings, but like um, there's not a lot of resources over there. There's not a lot of wealth, but there's seemingly a lot of joy. It's just a really crazy thing, right? Like like because um, like poverty over there is so prolific, poverty isn't seen as a curse. Something's wrong with you because your dad didn't work the right way or you didn't go to college the right way. Like poverty is a part of life, and so therefore God can still be good in the middle of poverty. It's not a curse. It's something that he can use in, in our lives. And uh, it was so different that from American poverty. And so, you know, as, as I talk about it with you over coffee and as you humor me and smile and nod, you know, I know it's difficult because what I'm talking about today is not necessarily, you know, like an easy story with a sequence of events. At the beginning, this happened, in the middle, this happened, and then this crazy testimony happened, and then this person got saved. What I'm really trying to convey to you more than just the events is an entire experience. It's, it's just a, it's, it's a, it's a, a climate, a culture, a way of life that, you know, that me and you know, my friends and, and my family were able to experience within the kingdom of God because of those believers. And so I'm at a loss of words to communicate sometimes an experience. And it's even harder than that because really what I'm saying when I'm talking about conveying an experience uh, uh, of, of seven days in a different country, what I'm really talking about is not just, just the cultural experience, just the cultural you know, shock of being somewhere else that's different with a different language, and then the shifting that goes on in your heart and your attitude while you're there. I'm not just talking about cultural shock and shift. I'm talking about kingdom shock and shift. At some level, you're going down there, and you're thinking to yourself, like, I know that based on my medical records and the college that I went to and based on the household that I grew up in and the house that I live in now, I should be happier than you, but I'm not sure that I am. 
you're going down there and you're realizing, you know, I went to this college and I studied this thing and I have, you know, this level of bilingualness and I can do such and such with this level of academic competency. But you're, you're, you're looking at this 12-year-old kid that maybe doesn't even speak English that well or know, knows how to read and write that well. And you're saying, I'm not really sure if I'm wiser than you, if you're wiser than me. And at some level, you're down there with another game of that one blow-up dice. It's amazing what Guatemalan kids can do with one little blow-up dice and like balloons that they pop that you go down there and play these games. It's amazing the amount of joy and, and community and, and it's like ongoing like when you were at summer camp, but the summer camp never ends, you know? Like I'm not so sure with all the money that I would have in my bank account who's wealthier, me or you. At some level, you're going down there and it's hard to convey not only a cultural experience, but a kingdom experience. And so as we read through, you know, the books of uh, of Scripture, not the least of these is John that we'll read today, it's important, like, the Bible wants us to empathize with exiles, to understand and think about what it means um, to live continually away from home, to live under colonization, under captivity, under under colonialism, Like, like you're thinking about Abraham from the beginning as he's making his way through the different uh, kings that Melchizedek had to deliver him from, and you're thinking about, you know, Moses having to deliver the Israelites out from under Egypt, and you're thinking about Daniel, you know, having his name changed and his friend's name changed in the middle of Babylon, having to change his name and his diet. And you're thinking about Jesus and the way he's preaching about the kingdom of heaven right in the middle of the kingdom of Rome, offering a counter kingdom to the environment that they're living of. And you're thinking of Paul and Peter who wrote their book um, about exiles, It's important as we read the Bible, the Bible wants to teach us to empathize with exiles because I think the claim that it's making is that all of us are born in the kingdom of heaven, not home, but in exile. That all of us are born underneath another kind of a rule, another kind of a kingdom, a human kind of kingdom. It doesn't look so much like heavenly kingdom. It looks upside down where right is wrong and right and wrong is right. And we are born in this thing so much that we're anesthetized to it, that we're somewhat inoculated to it, and we don't even think about the fishbowl, you know, that we swim in. You know, if you think about an exile, like a refugee, the hard thing about growing up in exile is that you not only don't have a home, but you've never really had one. That all of the heritage and the history had to get channeled down by oral history and word of mouth. And, and the identity that you have, the heroes that you have, are not the ones that are on the billboards. They're the ones that your parents talk about and try to tell you to encourage to, to think about. But it's not the ones that are on the statues in front of the Colosseum. It's not the ones that are promoted, you know, in, 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 in common culture. And then also the culture, like if you're, if you're a person that's living in exile, like the culture that you live in, the things that your parents are telling you are right, once you step outside the door of your house and you go into the rest of the world, the world is telling you it's wrong. And vice versa, the things that your parents are telling you that are, that are wrong and not the right way to go, you're going outside and you're seeing them encouraged in other ways. And I think the Bible is telling us to empathize with exiles because we're all exiles. We didn't grow up with history books that taught about Moses, right? We grew up with the, the patriarchy of, of, of a different kind of culture and a different type of heritage, we are more likely, at least in our, in our narrative and in our, in our emotional development as kids to associate with people like George Washington than, than King David. We didn't grow up with, you know, Moses action figures. Maybe you did if you were homeschooled, right? But other than that, we grew up with RoboCop just like everybody else, and we grew up not looking at, you know, people like Solomon and Wisdom. We grew up with Justin Bieber, we are acclimated. We are assimilated. The goal of colonialism isn't just imperialism. It's assimilation. It's, it's to not only colonialize somebody, but to get to somebody to a point where they don't even realize they're colonialized, that they're colonized. And to go into a place that, you know, as, 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 your, as, your, as your mentors and as your, um, 
as your relatives, as your leaders, as your shepherds, as your pastors, to, to, to be in an environment where, you know, what is considered to be right within the confines, you know, of your home, the minute you step outside, those things are being challenged and threatened. Everywhere you go, you're called wrong, and the things that you think should be wrong are called right in other places. And so, and so here's the danger, I think, that we approach in every, each and every Easter. The thing that can happen to us at the beginning of Palm Sunday, as I didn't get to wear my little palm shirt today because my wife said it was inappropriate and not, you know, the right kind of palm, and I was like, whatever, agree to disagree, right? And we make our way through the Holy Week and into, and into uh, Sunday and into Easter. One of the most dangerous things we could do to Easter is neutralize it and normalize it. To make Easter into a crochet pillow, to make Easter into a tradition that we just kind of go back to and remember the good old story, to make Easter into just something that we have pastel colors on and buy a $19 brunch, to make Easter normalized. Because there's nothing normal about Easter. Like if you think about like what is actually being celebrated on Palm Sunday is no less than uh, an incumbent king moving his way into the capital city of Jerusalem while the guards of Rome stand by and declaring what would have been pretty much the White House of that day, that the person that's in that office is actually not king. I'm king. What's so normal about that? That he goes on to uh, go turn over tables in what would have been some sort of a bank or a, I don't know, at least Southern First, if not maybe some type of a stock exchange, and called everybody in that room a den of robbers and turned over tables. There's nothing normal about that. There's nothing normal that's meant to be interpreted about that as much as we want to think that we associate and we ascribe to that. It doesn't match, you know, the way that we live and the air that we breathe and so forth. There's nothing normal about being traded out for a slave, you know, or a criminal like Barabbas. There's nothing normal about being bitten, beaten 40, you know, slashed 40 times. There's nothing normal about an empty tomb, a dead man raising. There's nothing normal about Easter because it's not supposed to be normal. And here's the danger is if we normalize Easter, if we just kind of make it a crochet pillow, if we normalize Easter, we lose the shock of Easter. And if we, if we lose the shock of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, if we lose the shock of Jesus, the king over heaven and earth, then we lose the opportunity, I believe, for the shift that it wants to bring about. It's a really long little sentence, but I wanted to make sure I wrote it down so I didn't mess it up. Right? But Easter is supposed to be strange, and here's why. If Easter's not strange, then our lives, compared to Easter, can just be normal, everyday lives. If Easter's not strange and Easter's just normal, then our lives are normal and it doesn't have anything to compare it to. We just neutralize it and nullify it and we, we mute it and neuter it and we just kind of make it into this pastel little thing. If we neutralize it and whitewash Easter, then our lives don't have to be challenged. Then the colonial, everyday, provincial life of what we do, of buying, trading, selling, working 80 hours a week or whatever, that just begins to become status quo because the colony that we live in is the kingdom we live in. And there is no other king that comes to invade it and shake it up and shock it. But if, that's not, if, if the opposite is true, or rather, if the former is true, if, if Easter is not strange, then the life, death, and Jesus is just tradition, and it no longer shocks us, and it no longer wakes us up, and it no longer calls us up out of the colonies and, and little subcultures that we live in. But if Easter is allowed to be strange, if it's allowed to be provocative, if Easter really is one kingdom crashing into another to wake us up from our everyday lives, then our lives become strange. Then the things that we do and we practice and the cultures that we live in and breathe in, if we allow it to confront us in the way that it's supposed to, then the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus can actually do what it's supposed to do, which is to shift and transform us forever. And so this is what I think we are looking at when we look at John chapter 12. So John chapter 12, verse 12, it says this. This is the scene. The next day, it says, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Like, uh, you know, every year uh, when I was living in Albany, I got to go to the big city in New York, and you go there and see all the Broadway shows and hang out and maybe, you know, uh, 
One time, I did see um, Scottie Pippen in Chicago, which was awesome, but I get to see somebody cool. Every single year, there's a pilgrimage in Passover that the Jews would gather around, and this is their chance to tell their kids the story. It's their chance in the middle of the Roman narrative to talk about an Abraham narrative, to talk about the promise of Abraham, and to talk about Moses and the Passover that took, took place. And so this festival is the gathering of all these Jewish uh, families. And it's all the way into Jerusalem, the capital city of the Israelite nation, where uh, the Roman guards are also gathered, kind of to set this little stage of basically all the Jews and all the Gentiles. The Roman guards kind of come to set the stage to think, hey, if you ever get any ideas about this, uh, this uh, Messiah figure that's coming along and, and you want to resist our kingdom, just remember whose spear is at your throat. And so the Jews and the Gentiles are gathered in this place. And here's this stage that's set in verse 13. It says, and they took palm branches, this is children, uh, that are in the streets along with um, some of their parents. They take these palm branches and they go to meet Jesus and they identify Jesus and they begin to wave their, their branches at Jesus and they throw their cloaks on the road and they shout this, this word that is actually very scarce in all of the pages of scriptures. It only appears in one other psalm. I think it's Psalm 120 something. But Hosanna, which essentially means save us. Hosanna is identifying Jesus as the coming king, the coming Messiah, and has three different identifiers to it that is listed in some of the... Um, some of the uh, verse of this song here. One of the verses says, blessed, which is a God word, blessed, blessing does not just mean to be happy and wealthy. It means to be doing life with God. So blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the promised Messiah. So not only is this man that they're identifying and calling Hosanna God, but he's also Savior. And lastly, it says, blessed is the King of Israel. He's not only God, he's not only Savior, but he's also King. So I did some research uh, this week of famous inaugural songs that uh, presidents uh, had as they came into office. Back in the 80s, they used to sing boring songs like, uh, this land is your land, or God bless America, or something like that. But in the 90s, Clinton got in there, and he kind of shook it up, and he did uh, the first little, like, you know, non, uh, non-nationalistic patriotic song. Uh, and he had Fleetwood Mac um, uh, sing, Don't Stop, uh, which is like, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. You know that song. So they start singing that song. It's a real baby boomer type of a song, I guess, right? And, uh, and so then, uh, so then uh, George Jr., you know, couldn't, couldn't um, let him show, it up, show him up. So he brings in Ricky Martin. He sings this song called Cup of Life, which I've never heard before, uh, but um, probably couldn't sing it nearly as good as, as Ricky Martin. And then, uh, and then finally, um, uh, Barack Obama, uh, in his um, incumbency in, in his inaugural um, party brought in Beyonce to sing the song At Last, which is a pretty cool song, talking about kind of the, the, the first African-American president, right? So, so if, you, if you read the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel says that seven times, whatever, 70, 77, that like to the thousandth, thousandth day and year and time and moment, like the entrance of Jesus on this donkey has been planned like from the beginning of history, like it was prophesied in Daniel to the day that this was the Passover that Jesus was supposed to come and show up exactly on the way that he shows up, riding the exact donkey that it said it was going to do. Like this has been prophesied for a long time. He actually says in other renditions to go and get that donkey and he tells him exactly which street it's going to be on, exactly what to say, and exactly what the guy's going to say when you say what you're going to say, right? He has it all planned out, which means that he can choose who he wants to sing his inaugural dress song and he can choose the song that he wants to sing it. It's a curious thing. It's a strange thing. He chooses kids, of all things. And notice the song that he picks is not a hallelujah song. It's not like, uh, and I will raise you up on eagle's wings, you know, we shall overcome type of a hope song, right? It's not even hallelujah, we raise a, you know, John, I can't remember the name of that, that got the Bethel song, right? Like, we raise a hallelujah in the presence of our enemies. It's not like a victory song. It's not even amazing and grace. Like, he sings a song that I'm not even, even sure I could think of a, of a parallel hymn that we sing today called Hosanna, Save Us. Hosanna, Save Us. What an interesting inaugural song to sing. I was um, walking out of the gym 
uh, the other day with Leo, and I noticed that the flag was at half-mast. And uh, he asked me that question. He said, why is, why is the flag half-mast? And I had to think about it. I had to think about it for a couple seconds, and I realized, I was like, dude, you know why that flag is half-mast? Because we had a school shooting this week. And I don't even know what to say is sadder. The fact that we had another school shooting in our country or the fact that it took me seven seconds to even remember it, how common that is. Uh, I met a, at a soccer game the other day, and um, these are just educated, you know, proper, probably go to church with some of them type of people, right? And the ref is down there, and they made a call that the parent didn't like. Have you ever seen one of these things? The ref decided to make a call that one of the parents didn't like. How dare they? You know what I mean? And there are veins just like coming out of this like guy's throat, and he's just losing it on this 16-year-old ref who's making $12 an hour, <laughs> yelling it at this kid. What's sad about what's sad about that? I'm in uh, I'm in the line, you know, getting donuts over here, right? Uh, this is like yesterday, trying to set up donuts for today, and this lady is like speaking to this clerk behind the thing. I mean, a little bit frustrated at how long it's taken. And there's a point where you start talking to a person and their employee, and yeah, you're supposed to sort of be clear about what you want, but there's a point when you stop treating that person like a person, you start treating that person like an object because they're getting in your way and they're taking too long. And then I'm realizing as the pastor that I'm sitting there judging this person and probably realizing that I do that nine times out of ten, right? And so here's the deal is that this king comes in on this donkey and these, and these, and these, and these palms and this jacket. It's this scene, man. Like it's a spectacle, and it seems like a mockery, almost irreverent to some degree, that you're calling me, that that's God, the Messiah, and the King of Israel that's come in on this donkey, and we're supposed to worship him. And I think it just creates this, this, this dynamic. Is if, if we normalize it, then I guess we just go on as Tuesday goes on. But if we allow that thing to be strange, it really, makes, it really calls the question. Like, like, out of the two people, that king on the donkey, right? Or the king that I want to rule out in my own kingdom... And, and see how that plays out. If you see the kingdom that Jesus creates and the kingdom that humans create, and you put them next to each other of all the school shootings and all the soccer moms yelling at everybody and all the people that are impatient in line, which includes you and me and pastors that judge them, and you see the king that rides on the donkey, you really start to ask yourself, and which one is right and which one's wrong? Which one's upside down and which one is right side up? So it goes on from the hearing, right? From, from hearing the song of, of inauguration to, to seeing the vision and the visuals. So verse 14 says this, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See your coming, uh, king is coming up seated on a donkey. Verse 16 says, at first his disciples didn't understand all this. Only after this, uh, when he was glorified, it says, did they realize that these things had been written about him and these things had been done to him. And so here's uh, Jesus that's riding in on this donkey and this promise that comes from Zephaniah that the daughter Zion is, is exiled but not forgotten. I mean, you've got your, your, your precious child, right? But the child has been exiled by sin, you know, into slavery and, and they've got Egyptian makeup on. They sing the Egyptian songs and they, they, they've forgotten their, their, their heritage. They've forgotten their identity. They've been swallowed up by the culture, assimilated really, and bondage by the imperialist Roman culture. They've become you know, they've become in bondage. And, and, and so here comes the Messiah that's been promised way, way back, all the way back to the days of the prophets. And he comes in to, in to rescue them. And here's, here's what's encouraging to me. In verse 16, it says that the disciples who had been hanging out with him for whatever it is, you know, up to three years at this point of his earthly ministry, they're sitting there puzzled at all this chaos. And even the disciples who saw him change water into wine, the disciples who saw him raise Lazarus from the death are, sit, are sitting there and even they can't comprehend it. It says that they're sitting there chewing on it, trying to understand it, and they can't understand it until, until ultimately they realize that the, crucifix, the, the crucifixion of Jesus was the glorification of Jesus. I was uh, on the way home, you know, on the plane, 
And uh, Charles, uh, my friend, uh, Charles Gouch, who, uh, who uh, was the other dad that kind of brought the kiddos down, uh, made the wrong mistake to a preacher, you know, and he asked him, you know, asked me what I thought about the trip to Guatemala. And I made a little decision in my head before I started talking that I wasn't going to be like with those blabbermouth people that opens up about their mission trip and never shuts up. And, uh, and so uh, I, I said, I'm going to say one sentence. And uh, it did not say one sentence. I started talking and I did not stop talking for probably 30 or 40 minutes. There's like so much on my mind and so much in my heart that I was trying to process that like when you see something that's so strange and so upside down and so different, I mean, you could just button it up and move on and sweep it under the carpet. Or you could start talking and realize exactly what went, what's been going on in your heart and your head and you wouldn't have never noticed it unless you had a good friend like Charles to ask you on the play ride with a long enough plane ride. And so if you look at 1 Corinthians 1, I think Paul helps us journal, helps us understand what's going on in the hearts and the minds of the people that are seeing the king of heaven come into their midst and totally miss him. And this, I think, is what um, Paul is saying is going on between the ears of the people that maybe were a little bit startled or confused. Verse 20 says this, where's the wise person? Paul starts talking about wisdom. He says, where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Like, this is the deal, right? Like a donkey. Here's the reality. I mean, you know you're religious, right? And I know you've been to church probably 20 times. You've heard Palm Sunday sermons. I'm telling you what, if I call up Donkeys Are Us and rent a donkey and come down here in 25 Sweetbriar, as many times as you've seen these palms and as many times as you've been to the story and you've been to youth group and you've seen this story, if I ride in a donkey, it's weird. It should always be weird. I hope you say that it's weird. It's a very weird thing. If a preacher walks down to the middle of the aisle to preach a Palm Sunday sermon on a donkey, you might think about leaving. It's a very weird thing, right? You might even call it foolish. And that's exactly what's going on. It's like, it's like the kingdom in these people's midst. I mean, everything in us doesn't understand. Everything in us thinks that more money is more joy. Everything in us. Everything in us thinks that more speed is more, more accomplishment. We are wired that way. We are geared that way. And it's deeper even than our American heritage. It's, 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 it's being part of the line of Adam. From the very beginning, this is the foolishness of man that sees Jesus and wouldn't be able to recognize him. It says that when, God, when people see God... They think it's foolish. It doesn't make sense to them until they see the cross. For since the wisdom of God um, in the world um, is not known by them, God was pleased through the foolishness. I mean, it could be through a little 12-year-old kid that, that somehow is able to understand the Bible and understand the wisdom of God more than a guy that went to seminary. It could be you know, uh, a sleepless night that you spend in a mission trip, you know, where you're throwing up half the night and then you wake up the next day and God decides to speak to you. Like, God's going to speak to you and use whoever he wants, however he wants to use it. And sometimes it looks like foolishness. And so verse 22 says, Jews demand a sign. Like, this is the problem that the Jews had. The Jews didn't mind that he wasn't, you know, a military guy and he wasn't like a six-pack guy from the Romans. Here's what I think that they got stumbled on the most. How can the one who comes from the holy of holy place come in on a donkey? Like, that's just flat-out disrespectful. How am I supposed to believe that the Son of God, the Messiah, and the Savior of the world is coming to me on a donkey? I don't accept it. It's too, it's too hard. I'm stumbling over it. Secondly, that for the, for the Gentiles, it's a completely opposite deal. It's not necessarily the irreverence of the whole thing. It's just the stupidity of the whole thing. You can't come in and claim a kingdom. You come in on a horse. You don't come in on a donkey. It's the foolishness to Gentiles. So verse 24 says, but to those whom God called both Jew and Greeks, both Jew and Gentile, Christ says in the power of God that this is the wisdom of God. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than humans and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So here's the snag. Like the Roman vernacular, which still exists in our day, by, by, by the way, it doesn't care about how good you are. Like it, 
You know what I mean? Like if you're in that business world, they don't really care if you, you know, cheat on your taxes. They don't really care if you sleep around. They don't really care what your ethics are. They don't really care what you, they just care that you have a bottom line. Like what the world wants of you and me is like show up and do it better. And when they're looking at that king, they don't see a delivery of salvation. They see foolishness. And that's what the Romans see. They don't see, they don't see a king, right, that's riding in to claim a kingdom. They see a fool that's leading other fools to perishing because the Romans believe that you go get the good life by doing better. Do it faster. Do it stronger. Do it cleaner. Do it clearer. Do it, do it uh, with more force and more, and more strength. But the other side of it, the Jews, which, by the way, all of us still, you know, we're not Jewish necessarily by heredity, but in terms of religiosity, the religious rules of the day were just as religious as some of these legalists are here. The thing that we get stuck on is not necessarily do you have a good, you know, house, because that probably means that you did something wrong to get that, and, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, do you succeed at business, but what really matters is, like, who you are as a person and the ethical lines that you walk. It's the, it's the holiness factor. It's the self-righteousness factor that when they're seeing this person that's coming in humble and meek and seeing the power of God replace the strength of man that they're getting stuck on. So they're getting stuck on the same thing, right? One of them is getting stuck on being better and the other one's getting step, stuck on doing better, but neither of them are seeing the gospel uh, because ultimately they're looking for a king and they can't see the savior that's come, come before them. What Jesus is saying on the cross, the great um, decoder that takes place when we realize that the crucifixion was the glorification of God, that his ex- ex- execution was his exaltation, when we see that this donkey person is coming in, right, to claim the kingdom, what's being claimed here is that all of the doing that we would ever do, all of the doing would ultimately lead to death. That all of the, the work, like here's what's going on with me in Guatemala. Like I'm having a culture problem, but I'm also having a kingdom problem. And here's what I'm really realizing, is that as much as I claim, you know, uh, that Jesus is king, and that he's, he's bringing the kingdom into my life, and I value and exalt him above every other king, I kind of believe that the good life is coming from doing better. Why am I, why am I back to back to back of meetings, like texting while I'm driving down the road, that out of 24 hours a day, that I can't seem to enough time to do the good that I want to do, other than the fact that I think that doing good is going to get me the good life? And furthermore, as I'm processing with Charles and I'm talking about it, it's not just about slowing down Right? And it's not just about having more community in my life. Like, like deeper than that, I believe that my salvation and my good life comes from being better. That the reason why, you know, what as I said in the last sermon, you know, from Sunday, that one of the greatest miracles Jesus ever did is have 12 friends as a middle-aged man. Like it's different, it's 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 deeper than my calendar. It's because I don't want to look bad, it's because I don't want to look weak in front of others that I only have, I only want to spend time with people with the margin that I have where I'm the shiniest and brightest. And so therefore my isolation is way deeper than my culture or than the things that are going on in my life or because of my busyness, my, 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 my isolation doesn't come from a busyness problem, it comes from a gospel problem. It comes from the desire to look good and be good and might I add, even if there is an American foolishness that we buy into, it's to feel good. And so what Paul is saying is that that. For these disciples, what they are realizing is that what they thought was normal was actually strange, and what they thought was strange was actually normal. And at the point of the crucifixion, when they realized that they were not just seeing on that donkey a king but a savior, that he was dying the death that being good and doing good on your own would have brought you to, that he was able to take the death that we deserve to give us the life that we could never live, and in the spirit receive what real wisdom looks like. So it closes up here in verse 17 as, as it um, talks about the aftermath of this moment. 
that some of the people received it and some of the people rejected it. But verse 17 says, now the crowd that was with him, um, they were the ones who saw Lazarus. They were the ones that saw the miracle of death coming to life. And they continue to just be shocked by it. Like there's a way that you can hear, um, um, that you can hear testimonies, right, from, from Trey up on the stage. And there's a way that you can literally sit there and you can say, oh, that's so cute. Like I remember when that happened a long, long time ago. I'm, I'm really glad that that happened for him. It's a good thing that it happened to him, but that's not really my story and that's not really my God and that's not how we really acted. There's ways that you can look at testimonies and decide not to be shocked by them. You can say, oh, that's just a youth group kid and she's just excited about you know, what she's going through, but she's just emotional and that's, exact, you know, that's just kind of like part of it. And I can explain if I want to the shock of what I just experienced. I can go home from Guatemala and just be like, ah, oh, well, you know what? Their, past, their, their airport was disorganized and so therefore you know, the American dream is really better than the Guatemalan dream in the end, right? Like you can go ahead and button the thing up all that you want to. But what is on display here, I think, for the, the, the foolishest of man to find the wisdom of God is an opportunity here to see Lazarus, and not only that, to see Jesus, and to, be, and to allow ourselves to be shocked by it enough that it, would, that it would change us, that it would shift our hearts and shift our mind, and that it would start to spread out to others that we talk to. So verse 18 says that many people, because they had heard um, the, the sign that was performed, the thing that they saw, the thing that shocked them, they went out uh, to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look now, the whole world has gone after him. Like, I think this is the point. Like, Easter, I don't know, you know, what goes on in heaven in April. You know, as, as Jews celebrate Passover and as Christians celebrate Easter, like, I don't know what's going on. But, but I would guess that in the, in the wake of an empty tune and a testimony of a sign and wonder, so, so huge, so compelling, so offensive as, as the, the, the Son of God, the Messiah of the world, to come in on a donkey and leave this earth on a cross, only to be resurrected three days later. Like I, I, would, I would think that heaven's not telling that story and continuing to prophesy that story, even through scriptures and pulpits across America, so we could just sit there and shock and awe of it and not do anything about it. To not to process exactly what that would mean for us and actually do something and live it out, that, that moment that, that seems chaotic at first, but makes sense through, through the lens of the cross. And so this is what uh, the word I want to introduce to you that's part of our, our intentional question today. And that is, um, I want to ask you about a kairos moment. So this is uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 15. It says, um, when Jesus first shows up, not at the end of his life, but the beginning of his life, the very first thing that he says in the first chapter of Mark, before he says anything else, he says, the time has come. What he's saying there is the kairos moment, that the reality of heaven... The reality of heaven is so pervasive and so powerful and so, so attracted to, um, to lost people is that the reality of heaven has found a time in Kronos time at the time of Jesus to arrive. The time has come, and it says the kingdom of heaven has come near. For everybody that would be able to see past this inaugural song and not stumble over or be offended by it, there is an opportunity for the kingdom of heaven to encounter people. This is what Jesus is saying about the entire time that he lives his life on the earth. He says, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And he says, for those that are blessed, for those that are coming in the name of the king, they will stop. They will not move on with their day. They will not just plug on with the, with the 80 hours a week calling it normal and just plug on with outrage culture and cancel culture and just call it normal and just plug on with just monotony in their homes and lack of spiritual vitality. They're not going to do that because the kingdom of heaven has confronted them so strikingly in such a striking way. It might not have been the first Easter or the seventh Easter or the 15th Easter, but one of these Easter's, the time comes and it confronts a person. It stops them in their tracks and it demands that the testimony is not behind them. It's right in front of them. 
And that there's some, some reckoning to be dealt with here in terms of what the cross means. If the cross is glorification, that everything is upside down and, and that he's right side up. And so the kingdom of God has come near. It's time to repent. It's time to think about what's wrong here and not move on and receive and believe the good news. I was watching The Chosen the other day, and, um, and there was a moment, and I think it was the second episode of the second season, and John's over here, you know, The Chosen with, with uh, Remy, the, the, you know, the, the actor, and uh, so Jesus is here in the bed, and John's over here, and Peter's here. Jesus wakes up, and he, and he just, God, I'm thankful that you've provided another day. And he goes, all right, guys, let's go. I mean, it was two seconds on a piece of film, and I read the Bible for a living, right? And, and I, I saw that scene, and I'm like, why does my prayer life not look like that? Why am I sitting here, and I'm a preacher, for goodness sakes, and I can't pray with as much just like joy and light yokeness and our Father, you know, culture, as this guy has just demonstrated. And it's just a little scene. I'm sure the director just got a kick out of it and just put it in there and probably meant to do it. But this is what I mean. It's not the, it's not the width of time, right? It's the quality of time that God will break into your moment. And you can decide to just say, that was a great movie with a great actor, and I'm going to go tell my friend about it. Or I could sit here and think, God, I want my prayer life to be better. That's an option. Like the kingdom of heaven comes, and it's received by fools. It's received by people that are hungry and desperate enough to call out Hosanna to receive him in a way that they couldn't the moment before they, they said it. I was at a wedding uh, a, a, couple, a couple of months ago, and there's this, this dad, and he just, he just gave this speech, and um, he's talking about water into wine, and, um, and, and the first miracle at Cana. And it wasn't a quote. It wasn't, I, like, I'm trying to express, just like the beginning of the sermon, trying to explain to you this experience. All I can tell you is that I'm sitting there, and I'm going, this isn't the speech that every dad gives their daughter that I've been to before. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, as I listen to this, I let it sink into my heart, and I said, Lord... I want you to bring me to a place with my daughter Rose that by the time that she goes to get married, if she gets to have her hand given off to somebody to be married, I want to be at that place where I'm going to give that kind of a speech, where I'm going to come to a place of like, of counting, not just what college the kids went to and how successful they are, or just a few little things, but like to really weep over the gratitude and grace of God in somebody's life. I've, I've been in a traumatic situation, you know, recently, and, you know, and I've just been working through it just like you and just working through hard times, you know, in life just like you. And I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe that God has his hands wrapped around my life and he is not going to allow um, any weapon that's formed against me to prosper. I believe that he's using all things for the good of those that are called in Christ Jesus, including me and Kyra, okay? But here's the other thing that I'm learning and I need to understand is that um, within the kingdom of heaven, not only is it important to understand the power of sovereignty, but it's also important to understand the power of faith. And I got on a phone with a prayer warrior I mean, I have a prayer circle, but there was somebody that I got on the phone with a prayer warrior, and the moment she opened her mouth, I'm thinking to myself, I don't pray like this woman at all. And yeah, we can, like we talked about last week, roam around on the boat, and I believe that we're in the boat of security of the ark of the salvation of Jesus. If you're in Christ, the water's not getting in, the waves aren't going to beat you down, there's nothing that's going to happen in that boat. If you're saved, you're safe. Jesus makes good boats. But here's the reality. You can decide what you're going to do on that boat. And you can decide whether you're going to go in the corner and, and scream like a girl, like I do sometimes, or you can become a prayer person and begin to stand in the face of the enemy and claim authority over, over prayer, right? And so that's the moment is I can see that person, I'd be like, oh, I'm glad I know that person, I'll call him next time. Or I can say, Lord, what you've done in that person, I want you to do in me. I can allow that Kairos moment to disrupt me in such a way that I begin to cry at Hosanna and ask him to save me of the thing that, I'm, that I need saved from. And this is, the, I think, the, 
This is the line of scrimmage that we stand in every single Easter, is to placate an old story and to categorize it into an old narrative or put it off onto something that only is for a preacher or somebody that's lost their mind, right? And that's actually absolutely an option. But there's another option. There's an option for children on the street to cry out Hosanna and say, Lord, if your kingdom is coming, then I want to repent and believe the good news. I don't just want to watch this and write it down in my journal. I want to be after you. Like if it says in the end of this chapter that there's people at that time that, that encountered the kingdom in such a way that it turned them upside down so they would be after them, I don't just want to be in shock and awe. I want to be shifted. I want to be after you. I want to be changed. I want to do something about it. And so that's the question that I would want to ask you, right? If a Kairos moment is when God's kingdom arrives in such a shocking way, and it's happened, I would bet you if you watch The Chosen or whatever it is, there's something that's ticking you off right now. There's something that, that you're realizing you're more hypocrite than you thought. There's something that's, that's happening to you that you saw somebody that, you know, you're tempted to, to think, oh, they're, I have the JV Holy Spirit. They have a better Holy Spirit. I, I, I'm not called to walk like that. Like there's something in there that's shaking you up. And our, everything in our nature wants to go back home and take our toys. Everything in our nature wants to pacify and neutralize and nullify everything so that the kingdom of heaven is safe and cozy. But that's not what Easter stands for. And he designed the, the day, not us. And so the time has come. This is what Easter is. The time of Easter is the kingdom of heaven crashing to earth. That he is no less a king because he's riding on a donkey. He's coming to defeat enemies. He's come to establish his government. He's coming to free captives. And that's exactly what he did on the cross. And we can't spin that narrative in a new way and make it cozier than it needs to be. He is coming to confront us with the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who repent and receive the good news. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.